Hello, and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I am Andrew. And I'm his little brother, Caleb. Well, welcome back, everyone. We are finally reaching the end of our Civil War series. It's hard to believe that just three weeks ago we started this, Caleb. (laughs) I think there's uh, people groaning that have been waiting a year and a half for this. But in the future, when people listen to this, they'll just binge it one after the other. So hats off to you for discovering the show later. So this week, we're going to talk about some individuals and some individual companies and regiments that participated or tried to participate in various parts of the war. And first off today, we have a doctor, Dr. Peter Wilson. Dr. Wilson uh, was from upstate New York. He was a Cayuga leader. His Seneca name was D. John Nan de Wenho, and it means they hear his voice or the pacifier. Does that mean that like when people hear his voice, they become relaxed or calm down, or he's very good at dissuading people from battling against each other? Like many of the Aircoin sachems, he was known as being a great speaker. So it was said when he, if you were upset, he would talk to you and he would calm you down. So he was the pacifier. He was a peacemaker. He was born in uh, 1814. We originally thought Dr. Peter Wilson was the first Aircoin person to earn his medical doctorate, but we actually have some evidence that there was someone named Jacob Jameson. And this, if, if you remember the, the last name Jameson, Andrew, it's, uh, this would be the, the grandson or great-grandson grandson. of Mary Jameson, who was, uh, we, we talked about in the past, but she was a, a white woman who was kidnapped and, and joined the Seneca and became adopted and and ultimately didn't want to go back to the ways of uh, her her ancestors, wanted to continue to live and be a full member of the Seneca. So this is one of her descendants, and one of her sons went to Dartmouth College. And she was actually still living when he went there. Uh, Dartmouth, we've mentioned before, uh, I guess if you're from New England, it's famous, but outside anywhere else, you've probably never heard of it. But it's a very old school, I think from 1792. Wilson and Jamison probably didn't get along. Wilson was very into advocating against uh, selling lands, especially his ancestral lands, especially the Cayuga lands, because as of today, there are no Cayuga lands in upstate New York. But Jacob Jemison was actually on the payroll of the Holland Land Company, which means basically he was a sellout, if, if we could call him that. He was the one advocating to sell all this stuff to this land speculation company. Holland Land Company. Andrew, why does that name sound familiar? Oh, because we recently accepted an invitation by the Holland Land Company Museum in Batavia, New York, to speak there on April 27th. Do they want us to talk about how they stole all the land from the Iroquois Nation? Actually, they asked us to talk about Ely Parker, so I guess that's what we're going to talk about. So if you're in the Batavia area in the the month of April, swing on over to the Holland Land Company Museum and hear Andrew and I live. Was that a good plug, Andrew? It's the best we can do without actually hiring voice actors and a marketing company. But Dr. Peter Wilson went to Geneva Medical College. And Andrew, when I first read this, it was during actually my research on on Ely Parker, and he it had mentioned this doctor, and I thought, Geneva Medical College? There's no Geneva Medical College. Andrew and I live 20 minutes from Geneva. So I start looking it up. Was there ever a medical school in Geneva? And turns out, if you are familiar with Hobart and William Smith, it is uh, known as kind of a prep school that all the rich kids go to in Geneva. Uh, but that was originally... Uh, there were two separate colleges, Hobart and William Smith, a men and a women's school. 
and Hobart was the men's school. And prior to being Hobart, it was Geneva Medical College, way back in the mid-1800s. But today it's just known as Hobart. The medical school ended up closing down a few years after this and actually moved to Syracuse University and became the founding of the Syracuse University Medical Department. We're going to have a lot of digressions in this episode, so I'd apologize, but I say just deal with it. Uh, speaking of digressions, at this same school, uh, five years later, a woman named Elizabeth Blackwell graduated from there, and she has the distinction of being the first woman in America to graduate with a medical degree. This medical school was famous for a lot of firsts and breaking grounds to allow people from all backgrounds to attend. Hey, we keep getting sidetracked, so let's get back to Mr. Wilson. Wilson was a huge advocate for Seneca and the Cayuga people, and he he spoke many times in front of the New York State Assemblies. In fact, there's very little information on him, and that's how, how we, uh, the little we have is because of that, because some of these speeches were recorded in the, the state archives. Yeah, in one meeting in 1847, he was at one of these meetings, and a man stood up and they were discussing historical monuments of the state. And he made the claim that the, the Iroquois left no monuments on their lands. And Wilson was sitting there biting his tongue. And when it was his turn to speak, he stood up and gave this speech. And you'd think that this would just be a speech that you'd write out beforehand. But we know that he was an excellent orator. And so he was able to just compose these things like this off the top of his head while he's thinking. And th we know that this was a... A thing that many Iroquois men, especially in leadership, were were well endowed with. It, it was their craft. It was what they were great at. You see before you an Iroquois. Yes, I am a Native American. You have heard the history of the Indian trails and the geography of the state of New York before it was known to the Pale Faces. The land of Ganao was once laced by these trails from Albany to Buffalo. The trails my people had trod for centuries, worn so deep by the feet of the Iroquois that they became your roads of travel. When my people no longer walked in them, your highways still lie on those paths. The same lines of communication bind one part of the longhouse to another. My friend has told you that the Iroquois have no monuments. These highways are their monuments. This is the land of Gadonon. This is Empire State. This is our monument. We wish to lay our bones under its soil, among those of our fathers. We shall not long occupy much room in the living, still less when we are gone. Have we, the first holders of this prosperous region, no longer a share in that history? Glad were your forefathers to sit down upon their threshold of the longhouse. Rich did they then hold themselves in getting the mere sweepings from its door. Had our forefathers spurned you from it? When the French were thundering at the opposite end to cut a passage through and drive you into the sea, whatever has been the fate of other Indians, the Iroquois might still have been a nation, and I, too, might have had a country. There was a prophet of our race in early times who said the day would come when troubles would fall upon the Indians, so that they would knock their heads together. When that time came, they were to search for a large palm tree and shelter their heads beneath its shade, letting their bodies be buried in its roots, and cause the tree to flourish and become a fitting monument of the Iroquois race. That time now has come. We are in trouble and distress. We knock our heads together in agony, and we desire to find the palm tree that we may lie down and die beneath it. 
We wish that palm tree to be the state of New York, that it may be a monument of the Iroquois. Pretty impressive speech off the cuff. And uh, it's, it's not just uh, poetic in the sense of their trails being made into our roads. Uh, Route 5 and 20, which goes from Albany to Buffalo, basically, almost the entire length of that is Iroquoian Trail. And not only that, but the Erie Canal. If you walk on the trail down the Erie Canal, a lot of it you'll see signs that this was the old path where the Iroquois would walk between the different nations all the way from the Seneca up to the Mohawk through through these trails. And they were nice and clear and flat, so uh, the settlers found them very useful in building new roads and digging canals. We would not think of that as, you know, the, the land is our is our monument, what the trails are our monument, and our graves are our monument. It's interesting that it, it flashes their culture, but it's very somber and depressing at the same time because he sees that his people are diminishing. One thing, Andrew, I notice in this speech, and, and I notice it in a lot of these Sachem speeches from the time, and that's they're not saying, get off our land, this is our land. They always have this idea that we just want to be part of this land. We want to share the land. We want a place where we can die and be buried with our forefathers. We want to be able to hunt in our ancestral grounds. They don't say, we don't want you here. They, they have this idea that they just want to be part of it too. Uh, I find this line here very interesting. And you can tell he knows his history. He talks about, you know, saving your butts from the French and this and that. But he says, glad were your forefathers to sit down upon the threshold of the longhouse so that they could get the mere sweepings from its door. That, that might not make much sense. But remember, their, their vision of a longhouse is the whole nation and you've got the props and everything and so they're saying you guys were very small in number you were fledgling you were small you're hungry you sent refugees here and you were you would have just been happy to, for us to give you the the sweepings in other words they're sweeping out the longhouse and they'd be happy just to get the dust from the longhouse but they gave them so much more than that and just really putting things in a historical perspective on the hospitality that was bestowed and now you're insulting us saying we didn't even build any uh, monuments. In 1861, when war broke out, Dr. Wilson attempted to form his own war party. But he was rejected for many of the reasons that Andrew I've mentioned in other episodes. After the rejection, he asked an army officer if he could get a party of Indians together for a game of ball. Ball like, like what, like mum ball, like throwing it around or like? Stickball, lacrosse. Ah, yes. Uh, they wanted to do this so that they could show off their athleticism and, and war spirit. Can you imagine if you went down to the recruiting office and someone said, I'm sorry, son, we can't take you or your friends. How about you come out to the football field and watch us do a skirmish and you'll see that we're, we're for it. Uh, we, we would be like, what? What? This doesn't make any sense. But in their mind, what, what was lacrosse used for? It was not only used for for fun, and they call it the medicine game, but it was also training for battle, learning how to use sticks, how to be dexterous, how to move, how to swing, how to build up endurance, how to run. Remember, lacrosse is a cultural right. It makes me wonder what the recruitment officer thought when uh, that prospect was put before him, if he even understood at all what he was even trying to say or communicate. 
Meanwhile, up in northern New York, somehow about 25 Mohawks from Aquasasne, uh, also called St. Regis, were able to join the 98th New York in October 1861, but they were the exception. Uh, Dr. Wilson and his men had no such luck. And, and that's ironic because Wilson's family actually comes from a long line of people that have helped the Americans in the past. Now, Andrew, some of these Mohawk from the 98th New York transferred over into a Vermont Sharpshooters Regiment. And uh, when I saw that, I was thinking to myself, why would they wind up in a in a regiment in Vermont, of all places? And I had asked you about that because I thought, well, uh, Aquasasne's up. I mean, it, half of it is in New York, half of it's in Canada. It's a really awkward situation, but it's close to Vermont, so maybe they just went to Vermont to the closest recruiting office. But apparently, that's not the reason, as well, you found out. Well, uh, there, there's a couple speculations. One of them could be, hey, go further. And, you know, you get turned down one place, you keep working. But they had already been enlisted in the ninety in the ninety eighth New York, and it was eighteen sixty one, so it was very recent on. These other people that we've seen in these previous episodes didn't get in for two years plus. Mm-hmm. But eventually, in eighteen sixty three, is when they transfer over into the Vermont Sharpshooters Regiment One, and uh, I looked up the company, Andrew, and unlike a lot of these other regiments that were formed in eighteen sixty one, where you would have a company from one town and then the next town over would have another company and the next town over would have another company. What was happening is people were going into battle and it was wiping out entire communities. You know, a hundred of the best men of Canada and the hundred best men of Geneva type of thing were getting killed. So what they started to do is try to mix up the companies throughout different states. So some people theorize that's how they wound up getting transferred over. You know, they got a better offer and uh, they were trying to split things up. So so uh, four Mohawk wound up in a Vermont regiment. But Wilson could not get in, even though his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather had all fought in the War of 1812, and his uncle had also fought and died in it. Despite all his pleas and ways to do it, him and the Cayuga men were denied. However, I was able to do some digging, and that's not the end of the story. Oh, just let me give a little uh, clip here. What you're about to hear on this podcast from Andrew is something that nobody else really knows, even the experts. This is a true gem Andrew dug up on his own. So continue, Andrew. All right. I read online in some publications from ancient books that Wilson may or may not have been a surgeon in the U.S. Army. And I thought to myself, what does that mean, may or may not have been? Because I know We've had many ancestors that have fought in the Civil War. One was killed, one was captured and sent to Andersonville and escaped. Uh, A couple others survived. And so I've done lots of Civil War research. Caleb has done tons of Civil War research on the side, aside from this podcast. And there's all kinds of records out there. They've scanned and digitized every single enlistment paper from every single person. And I'm like looking on the National Park website, and there is nothing on a Peter Wilson, who was a surgeon. They worked in the infantry or the artillery. And I'm I'm going crazy here. Why can't I find anything about him joining the army? So I'm able to find a picture of his headstone on the Cattaraugus Reservation. And his headstone is a veteran's headstone. If you know them, you recognize them. The, The old ones are marble. They're white with a little round top on them. And on it, it says... 
associate assistant surgeon, U.S. And I was like, okay, so he was in the Army. But then I thought to myself, Caleb, what is an associate assistant surgeon? It sounds like assistant to the regional manager. It just sounds like this crap title position that they give somebody because they feel bad. But turns out, after doing some other research, Googling it, I could not find anything on Google. And then I had to find some random person's page that talked about what this actual position was. And apparently, these were doctors that worked in hospitals in their hometowns or home areas, and they treated wounded soldiers that had come back from the front lines that were injured. So apparently, he was not able to enlist in the war, but he was able to get a job working as a surgeon. It unofficially gave him the rank of lieutenant or second lieutenant, and gave him the pay of that, but he was never officially enlisted, and that's why no enlistment papers exist for him. But he was able to get the headstone and able to prove that he did help the U.S. Army. So basically, he would work his medical practice and then come down on his spare time or whenever he could to treat soldiers at this field hospital and help try and save lives. Wilson was never able to see the battlefield, but he still was able to serve and help save soldiers for the Union, which I think is awesome. Pretty cool. Meanwhile, over at the edge of Lake Michigan, the Oneida people were dealing with similar issues of exclusion. The Oneida Nation had relocated to Green Bay, you know, that's where the cheeseheads are, uh, about a generation earlier. At this time, there was only about 1,400 people in in their local community. When the war broke out, many Oneida wrote letters to the U.S. officials, and they wanted to join the fight. They said that they were allies of the United States and that their families had fought in the Revolution and the War of 1812, and they wanted to help. And when they say they were allies, if you go back and listen to our Fort Stanwix and Saratoga episode, you remember that the Oneida actually did make an alliance treaty with the United States. By 1862, it became obvious that the war uh, was not going to be a quick one-and-done thing. It was going to drag on and be a multi-year bloody affair. And as the troops started to die, the enlistments started to drop off. All of a sudden, you know, everybody liked the idea of the patriotism and getting a nice shiny uniform and a a musket and and posing for pictures with the pretty girls and, and being the hometown hero marching off the war. But all of a sudden, once it became apparent that, hey, this could uh, take four years and we could lose a a million men, uh, all of a sudden people uh, started to to wean a little bit with their patriotism. The new governor wanted to avoid calling a draft. He wrote the Secretary of War asking, hey, can we use Indian troops? And the secretary, being ever so prompt, replied the very next day. We've got the date stamps on the letters, so we know that it came as soon as he got it. And the answer was no. So Wisconsin had to proceed and initiate a draft. And Native peoples were exempt since, you know, they're not citizens. Even still, a few Oneida men were able to enlist. The difference is they were able to join in small groups of a few people. And this way, no red flags got raised. They were able to just sneak in under the radar. You know, if you're showing up with 50 men and want to have your own company, you know, that that raises red flags. But if you show up and uh, they they have a room on the roster spot and you speak English fine, you know, you can just picture the colonel being like, good enough. And the enlistment officer can meet his quota. 
However, in 1862, something else happened that sent shockwaves through the nation. And this had nothing to do with the war in the South. No, this is something that happened in the West. Caleb, are you familiar with the Dakota people, also known as the Eastern Sioux? The name, the Sioux, uh, you'd be surprised, Andrew. A lot of people haven't heard of the Iroquois, even though they've done so much for our country and in, been involved in so much of our history. But everybody knows the name, the Sioux. It's because people watch Westerns and nobody's made movies about Iroquois heroism. But I digress. The Eastern Sioux people were dealing with some really serious grievances against their American neighbors. We feel like a broken record saying this all the time, Andrew, but... It turns out that uh, traders and Indian agents uh, happened to be skimming and stealing and annuity payments meant for the Dakota. You don't say. Wow. Uh, I'm just going to give a disclaimer right here, Andrew. We don't have time to cover the whole war between the Sioux and the United States. Yeah, we're attempting to talk about the United here, uh, but we still need to mention exactly what happened. So we'll give a short synopsis here. In 1862, the Dakota Warriors attacked and killed hundreds of settlers in uh, the Minnesota area. The Dakota were led by Chief Little Crow, who took hundreds of hostages, women and children. The Civil War was going on while this is happening, though, Andrew, so uh, they were kind of the United States government was kind of busy. The response from the government was really slow, and it wasn't until late September that an army had been assembled by the governor. U.S. forces were victorious, and the Dakota surrendered after Little Crow was defeated at the Battle of Wood Lake. Within five weeks, the war was over. All told, 358 settlers had been killed. In addition, 77 uh, United States soldiers and 29 volunteers. And so now we've got the aftermath. Somebody's got to pay for this. A speedy trial was initiated against any of the Dakota men suspected to have participated in the raids, which I'm sure was done in an above-board manner with no conflicts of interest, with full legal counsel given to everyone, and I'm sure that there's no way that some of these trials lasted only five minutes. Uh, by me using that sarcastic voice, I mean that's exactly what happened. The military tribunal found 303 men guilty and immediately sentenced them all to death. This, uh, do you remember that Dark Knight movie when um, Bane is there with like all the politicians and he's just doing these sham trials one after the other after the other and just throwing them out on the lake and killing them? I've whatever? actually never seen The Dark Knight Rises. Basically, this trial is exactly how that went down. It was like, yeah, two-minute trials. And that, that's basically what they are trying to do here. There is absolutely no fairness, even if they were guilty. There's nothing that says, you know, right to trial or a fair and unbalanced jury. This is just a, a tribunal out for vengeance because they're trying to get even. There just so happened to be a Christian minister in the jury, or not in the jury, but in the courtroom watching the proceedings. And the minute that the trial was over, Andrew, he runs down the road to get a wire straight to Washington uh, uh, to implore President Lincoln of what's going on. And in his little wire, he says, you know, please spare these men. Lincoln actually gets back promptly. And as you know, Andrew, Lincoln was a lawyer. And he says, send me the trial notes. Can you admit, I mean, I don't know if, they either had to 
send it by mail to Washington or if they were like typing it out on the telegraph every single line, which I guess it wouldn't actually be that hard because there were very few notes, but I digress. So what does the president do? Well, the president, being a lawyer, can look at this pretty quick, and he noticed immediately from just the way that it was written that it was a complete farce and it was not a real trial. There was almost no proof that any of these people that they had tried had engaged in the attack on the Americans. Despite this, though, Andrew, it took a lot of guts for Lincoln to interfere in this because this is what the American people wanted. They wanted revenge for all the people that had been massacred. And whether these people were guilty or not, that wasn't the point. They wanted somebody to pay. So Lincoln was under a huge amount of pressure by politicians to have them all executed and to put this into kind of a modern day thing. Think of like uh, some of our prisoners at Guantanamo Bay after 9-11. Like, we don't know. I'd like to hope that the government knows more than we do, but we don't know what the people there have done, all of them. And we, we, our hearts were broken after all those people were killed, and we just wanted somebody to pay. And that's what the public was looking for here. So can you imagine the President of the United States getting up and saying, no, let's let's not be hasty. We don't know that all these people in Guantanamo Bay are really terrorists. You know, pe- people would, and they did when this was suggested, uh, really hate on whoever suggested it. And so to the credit of Abraham Lincoln, though, what did he do? Well, he commuted and pardoned 265 of the accused. And Caleb is not stressing enough how much political capital this takes because Doing this in peacetime would be one thing, but remember, the country is in the middle of a civil war where half of the country is trying to split away, and he's desperately trying to hold on to power. You don't know if he's going to be toppled. If if the army turns on him, Lincoln is weak. He he can't even stand up to these, you know, Indians out west. How how are we going to deal with these rebels down south? And so when he pardons 265 of them, it's, it's a big deal. That being said, 38 of them, who, whoever the suspected ringleaders were, uh, were hanged. And despite the mass amnesty that the president gave, this still makes this event the largest mass execution ordered by the federal government in U.S. history. No kidding. Yeah. And, and you'll see that uh, on Facebook. You know, Lincoln had the largest—sometimes people— don't put all the facts out there and they'll say, well, Lincoln will hated Indians because, you know, he ex- executed the most Indians at one time out of any person in U.S. history, which is true, but you need to know the whole story. And were all these people guilty? It's probably fairly accurate that not all 38 of these guys were as guilty as could be. And even if they were, they did not get a fair trial. But life sucks. What can, what can I say? Uh it stinks. But Lincoln was able to save 265 people. And that's that's where we'll have to leave it at that. You know, whether he was able to pardon them all or not, I really wonder if he would have had a, a different kind of revolt on his hands. But let's get back to the Oneida, because although the Oneida did not have anything to do with this, if you know anything about U.S. geography, you know that Wisconsin sits right next to Minnesota. And the American people there grew very suspicious and fearful of all Native people after this. And this was another reason that the 
Wisconsin government did not want any more Oneida joining the army because people might start questioning, why are we giving Indians guns and training them on how to kill people? Uh, on top of that, Andrew, it's not only the fear of training them. It's once you give them an enlistment and you put them in a blue uniform and they're like a real U.S. citizen at that point. And if you want to force them off their land after the war, how are you going to do it for U.S. Army veterans? Can you imagine the bad press? Oh, well, just wait. But I digress. It wasn't until 1863 when the U.S. was really desperate and they increased the bounty system and they loosened the restrictions for colored, that's the word they used, and Indian men, that's the word they used, to serve. <laughs> Sometimes reading history books and then trying to write out a script, it just makes things impossible. What can you do? An Oneida man could now take the place of an American who wanted to avoid the draft. Even back then, draft dodging was a thing. <laughs> it, it was actually legal back then, as long as you had the money for it. Yeah. So if I wanted to go for, you know, Richie Rich, I could get a $300 bonus and five bucks a month. And since I'm a poor farmer, uh, this sounds like a pretty enticing offer. But we still know that money wasn't the main motivation in here. Uh, they had been chomping at the bit for a long time to join this conflict. We're not exactly sure how many Oneida men served in the army. We know it was over 100, um, but some numbers we get 111 and some we get 142. And a little under half of them would not survive this war. Oh, wow. About 50 of the Oneida enlisted in the 14th Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry. Uh, 40 were assigned to Company F and then 10 more to Company G. And then in March 1864, they were given one of their first assignments. They were to report to this guy named uh, General Grant, who was at Vicksburg. Um, and something else was going on at Vicksburg that same time. There was a siege, and then Grant had a friend that was going to visit him. At this exact time that this Oneida company is coming and joining General Grant, Ely Parker is showing up to join General Grant's staff as an adjutant colonel. So the Oneida were then, uh, shortly after that, transferred to General Sherman's command as he was gearing up for his famous March to the Sea. Unlike Gandhi's March to the Sea, uh, they were not going there to make salt. Their objective was a scorched earth campaign and Sherman showed up at Atlanta, burned the whole thing to the ground, and then he and his men fanned out in different corps and cut a swath across Georgia all the way to Savannah on the Atlantic Ocean. And the Oneida men that were there would have been going around with the Union forces, torching every municipal building, raiding every field and storehouse for food and supplies. And basically, Sherman cut off his supply trains and just lived off the land to force the South into complete submission so that they couldn't feed their army anymore. And the Oneida soldiers really stood out in this because think about what they're doing. This type of warfare is exactly what the Iroquois specialize in. Sneak attacks, burnings, things like that. You know, they're not lining up like in the Revolutionary War and taking musket ball shots. They're scouting. They're finding where uh, the Confederates are hiding 300 cattle in a swamp. They'll go in there and find them and, and take them out and use, either take, take what they need for food and kill the rest. And so they were great for this. They really stood out as scouts uh, for the campaign through Georgia. There's one really funny story, Andrew, where uh, between a Confederate and an Oneida soldier, 
happened upon each other through the Georgian march. Uh, the, the Oneida ducked behind a rock to avoid getting shot by the Confederate. And as he's down on the ground, the, the Confederate, he sets his, his musket up on a rock and just waits for him to come out. And he's just trapped there behind the rock. And he's just waiting there, waiting there, waiting there, minute after minute, thinking at some point he's got to move out from that rock. And when he does, I'm going to shoot him. All of a sudden, and you can picture it like in a movie, you hear the click, and the Oneida man is standing right behind him with the gun loaded and says, drop your weapon. And uh, the Confederate ob- obliges him. And, and before he's uh, taken a prisoner, he asks the Oneida soldier, can you please answer me one question? It's going to kill me if I don't know. How the heck did you get out from that rock? I was, I was guarding it so you couldn't get out from behind it. And the Oneida soldier says, sorry, that's going to be my little secret. Even though the Oneida of the Wisconsin 14th were only in the war a little over a year, they saw a lot of action across a lot of the country. They went from Vicksburg, which is on the Mississippi River, to the Battle of Atlanta with Sherman, you know, all the way to their march to the sea. And then they doubled back all the way to Tennessee for the Battle of Nashville. They saw a lot of the country. Well, that would be why you said half of them got killed, right? Yeah. So those are some of the more bloody conflicts throughout the war. With the war over, the Oneida returned home, uh, once again having come to the aid of their ally. But things weren't very easy for them when they got home. When they were, while they were gone, their leaders sold uh, lumber rights to a lot of their land. Basically, Green Bay is right on the Great Lakes, a lot of very nice trees there. And the people needed money. And so they just said, yeah, you can come in and cut down these trees and, you know, take them on the lake and send them away to build Chicago or build Detroit or build Milwaukee, all these other cities on the Great Lakes. That's what the lumber was used for. And so they came back and their beautiful forested area was just basically like the end of the Lorax. It was just a depressing area. Lumber is a great way to get money one time. Yep. And then you got to wait three generations to even get a decent-sized tree. In the years that followed, broken record again, broken promises, discrimination abounded. Many more hurts over the years. The Oneida had to sell off a lot of their lands. But yet, still today, the Oneida still live. Their their land is butted right up against the I think, actually, some of their land encompasses the city of Green Bay. And Green Bay is not a big city. Really? Yeah, it's super small. It's the smallest team to have an NFL team. Like people Small from, city to have an NFL team. Yes. The so, team is the same size as the other teams. Unless you're saying that by pound, they are the smallest team to have an NFL team. They got one kicker that's you know, just a beanpole. It's, it's funny. I, I go to treaty days, and I'll see the Oneida from Wisconsin come to the treaty day, and they'll be wearing Green Bay Packer hats. It's, <laughs> it's just funny to, funny to see. It makes sense. The, the Seneca and Tuscarora people here, I see them walking around with Bill's hats. So football unites us all. So that's our Civil War series. We're done? We're done. It only took three episodes on Ely Parker and three other episodes covering all these other people and regiments. And a week and a half of recording. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us, everybody. Please remember to um, like us on Facebook. Yeah. You can leave a review on iTunes, but there's also other places you can now leave reviews, Caleb. On Audible, people can leave a review, and some have already. Are we going to let them be members of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan if they leave Audible membership or Audible reviews as well? Maybe they can be prop members. (laughs) I don't (laughs) know.
for those of you that don't know, Andrew and I, we like to give a gift. If you leave us a review, we have Wild Sweet Potato Clans. That's our fun little clan if you like the show. Uh, but we got sick of mailing them out because after, you know, 300 uh, mailings of mugs. It, Caleb uh, had to take out a second mortgage or dip <laughs> into his kid's college saving account. But if you are in the area and you would like to message us, I would love to personally give you one. So feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or on our email address. And if you're in the Canada, Rochester area, uh, we'd love to meet with you and, and give you one. <laughs>